Hello, and welcome to Off the Shelf, your true crime book club podcast. On the night of December 30th, 1884, a woman in Austin, Texas, named Molly Smith, was brutally murdered by a man who attacked her and her boyfriend in her servants' quarters, and then dragged her outside to complete a grisly assault with an axe. Over the course of the next year, the killer would kill four more black servant girls, culminating in a double event on the night of December 25, 1885, where two white, middle-class women were axed to death outside their homes. This killer was never caught, and would be dubbed various things in the press, including the Austin Axe Murderer, the Servant Girl Annihilator, and, as author Skip Hollinsworth dubs him in his book, the Midnight Assassin. Joining me today to discuss this book are my co-hosts, John Reese and Jonathan Menguez. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Ali and John. All right, so let's get started. John Reese, what are your initial thoughts on this book? So I quite like the book up until a certain point, which I'm sure we'll come on to later, but I didn't like the case much. Um, it just seemed to be a really dull um, series of murders, in my opinion. They just, yeah, just like, I don't want to say nothing happened, but it's like, oh, someone was attacked, and then everyone did loads of stupid things for three months. And then, ah, oh, someone else was attacked, and everyone did loads of stupid things for three months. And yeah, it just didn't, the case didn't grip me, but uh, yeah. I will say the same could be said about Jack the Ripper case, except weeks instead of months. But we'll we'll, we'll argue that later. John Menges, what did you think? Um, this, so this was the second time I've read the book. I read it when it first came out a few years ago. I liked it um, a lot. I I grew up in Texas, and I and my parents subscribed to Texas Monthly, so it was kind of like a ritual to read the true crime stories that were in Texas Monthly Magazine. And so I was familiar with Skip Hollinsworth and his writing. And I liked it a lot, um, but um, I think it could have, it, it might've been better suited to just have left it as the original magazine article that he wrote about the case. Um, which, so I don't know. As a, a case to get a full length book treatment, I, I'm I'm somewhat unsure about, but generally I really like the book, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so it's interesting for me because I didn't love the book. I didn't hate the book. I feel very middling about the book. Um, it's interesting. I did not research Skip Hollinsworth at all because as he did not agree to be interviewed, uh, I don't do ex extra homework. I am not that girl. So I didn't research him at all like I do other authors where I, if I'm going to be interviewing them. And I was reading it and and my I have two main criticisms with the book is and, and they're highly to do with how he writes, which is, of course, my main thing. And it reads like a newspaper writer, like he's a competent writer, but he has no spark. There's no uh, it's very competently written, but it's not it, it, it's not gripping. It doesn't he doesn't write in a way that grips me. There are a couple of things he did that I thought were really good. But for the most part, it was kind of just 
bland. And then he did a couple of things that absolutely drove me out of my skull, which was one, he didn't cite his quotations. Again, we've had this problem in the past book, but he would actually use full quotations and not cite them. And then he just quoted things that did not need to be quoted at all throughout the entire thing. If there was a single descriptive word, one single word that he was pulling from somewhere, he would quote that word. And it was so annoying. It wasn't something that needed to be quoted. Like he quoted this one journalist who said that somebody was, you know, I don't remember the two descriptors, but it was something like he was polite and kind. And he excerpt quoted polite. He was polite, quote unquote, and kind, quote unquote. And I'm just like, that is a ridiculous use of quotes. It just annoyed me. And he did it all the time. He would isolate these individual words out of context and quote these individual words for no actual purpose. And it kept just like making my eye twitch every time I would come across this. And I thought in it the same, I didn't, I didn't know when I was reading the book initially that he was a newspaper uh, writer, but it makes sense because that's kind of how he writes. And it just, it, it was a little <clears throat> like you said, yeah. maybe better kept as a magazine. A mag serial. He writes uh, features, magazine feature articles. He's not so much a newspaper writer, but he, he, um, yeah, he's a, he's a feature writer for Texas Monthly, which is a magazine. Um, but yeah, I agree. Um, like compared to uh, Hell's Half Acre that we just reviewed, where when she um, describes the Kansas Plains and the early summer and things like, I mean, she, she takes you there. Like, I don't know, I'm a Kansan um, and a Texan. So, but I get, but um, the author of Hell's Half Acre really puts you in the place of Kansas to where I was, like I said on the show, I believe, I was surprised to find out she was from England. Whereas Skip Hollinsworth, of course, he knows Texas and Austin, Texas intimately. And he gives us a micro history of the city of Austin, Texas in the years after Reconstruction. John, I think, was saying about this the snappy language or whatever. He doesn't quite have that um that flair of of putting you there it, in the scene. Um, and whether that is because he's not a novelist, and you know, I'm not sure. But um, but as I was reading this book, I con I was contrasting it between Hell's Half Acre and, and the Midnight Assassin does lack that that um, descriptive language, I guess. I, I I get the feeling that um to to skip um Austin and Texas is the center of the world, and it's the most important place on the planet. So it almost seems as if he's like, I don't need to really invoke imagery of Austin because everyone knows Austin because I know Austin so well. Um, right. It reminds me a bit of when, um, I think it was either the first or the second um, Robert Galbraith novel came out, you know, under J.K. Rowling's pseudonym. And there was a review in one of the London newspapers where the reviewer was like, why does J.K. Rowling, it must be the second one because they knew who it was. Um, why does J.K. Rowling waste time describing all of these London streets in detail? It's all very well with the magical world of Harry Potter, but we all know what 
Denmark Street looks like. And I think, well, no, if you're not a Londoner, you you might not know what Denmark Street looks like. So I, I think it comes down to the thing: if you're familiar, that familiar of an area, you feel it doesn't need to be described. If you think it's that important, right. and it's so familiar to you, yeah, yeah. Like we were talking off podcast, like I kind of uh, made a made a similar comment in that he is a Texan writer. Everyone in Texas, uh, you know, who who lived there, uh, especially throughout the '80s and the '90s would would be familiar with his work. So when he's describing um, Congress Avenue in the book, which is the main, as he says repeatedly throughout the book, the main thoroughfare, the main street in the business district, you know, the main the main street in Austin, which it is to this day. As a Texan, you you, you kind of like, well, yeah, of course it's the main, you know, just say Congress Avenue. Um, everyone should know what that is, um, which, which if he was just writing like he did in his Texas Monthly article, just for subscribers of Texas Monthly magazine, he wouldn't have had to do that because everyone is aware of what Congress Avenue is. Um, it does get kind of like, yeah, we know, you know. Um, the, well, I did not. So, oh, so I was going to say, so what I and what I had said in the private chat is is maybe he overreached his audience a little bit. Maybe this story is really interesting to someone who's familiar with Texas and Austin and and wanting and and wanting to learn about um that part of Austin history, but that that because this is a, a major book seeking a worldwide audience, he could have overreached his audience a little bit. One of the things I thought he did better than Hell's Half Acre, um, and again, I didn't enjoy this book as much as Hell's Hell's Half Acre. I am all about the writing, usually. Um, But I did think he did a better job of, in the beginning, he would introduce something and start talking about, you know, things that I was like, oh, how is this going to tie in? But it always came back around in the end and he tied it in like he described a wedding taking place at the asylum and he was, you know, going into very great detail about the new modern improvements at the asylum. And I kept thinking, okay, why do I care about this wedding at this asylum? Why is he going into detail? But then later in the book, he did bring it back around and you found out why that was mentioned because it actually had some relevancy at the, you know, towards the end. Anytime he introduced something where I, I was like, okay, what what is the point of this? There was a purpose to it and he brought it back around. There wasn't any extraneous information that was given that didn't have a direct purpose, which I like. I like having all of my, you know, I don't mind the mystery not being solved, but if you're all of your narrative threads are kind of left dangling, that bothers me to some degree. Like, you know, I've, I've said this before, what, what, what constitutes filler and scene setting versus what's needed. And I felt his book was tighter in that regard, in terms of snipping off all the loose threads, um, which I didn't find as much in some of the other books that we've read. So I do give him props for that. Again, even if his writing isn't inspired, it's competence, which, you know, is always appreciated. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, like with Hell's Half Acre, um, the um, 
she describes a lot of the political uh, contests going on in the state of Kansas at the time and the main players in that, you know, the, the winner in, in the contest um, against uh, Samuel Pomeroy ends up featuring as a main, as a main character kind of later in the story as um, his neighbors go missing, remember? Um, so in this, in Skip's book is kind of the same where he introduces Swain, I believe his name was, and you don't really know why, maybe particularly, but then later on when um, one of the women are murdered who spends, spends time at the bordello um, and then he becomes possibly one of her lovers and all this, you know, it, as you said, it kind of... Um, it's like that expression, you know, if, if they show a gun in the first act, it's going to be used in the third act. Um, that that does repeat itself. And with it, the the building of the hotel as well, you get a sense, you know, um, you, you hear a little bit about that, the building of the hotel um, downtown, but then that comes back around when there's the grand opening of the hotel. And it's the same as with the state capitol building, you know, um, they, they, they all uh, come come backwards to uh, back in the story to be relevant um, parts. So. All right, now let's get into the real juicy arguing and wrangling. John Reese, you said you found the story boring. What? Well, I don't know if it's just I found the story boring as such, but it's just like the, the, the actual story didn't captivate me. Um, it just seemed a bit. It didn't seem fascinating. It didn't seem that uh, that, that 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 you know that that, that gripping as a, as a murder case. Um, I, I find it, I find it difficult to describe. You know, but it's a, he snuck into these servants, mostly servants' rooms, whacked them a couple of times with an axe, maybe shoved a spike through their ear, and then ran off. Um, and then he did that. You know six times whatever and then in between is just all these things of people acting really stupid well i mean if we had a detailed account of all the people acting really stupid in the jack the ripper case as i said in the beginning it would be exactly the same it's not like they knew how to investigate a serial crime back then i did find the political machinations kind of interesting of how you know they were 100% convinced it was a black man up until the point they were like, well, this guy's too clever. He keeps getting away with this. Maybe he's a white man, you know? And I did find like the, the exploration of the racial themes. I found it actually very interesting and in how, um, it, you know, it wasn't considered that serious of a crime in terms of their society until white women started getting killed. And I did find all of that behind the scenes, not, I guess it wasn't behind the scenes. It was right out in the open, but that kind of uh, how we really, and even to this day, like we don't care quote unquote as a society until our kind is the one being killed, you know, until it's us yeah. being affected, until it's us who are in the crosshairs. So I did find that kind of interesting, the political ramifications behind, you know, that that were going on uh, in the background. I found that kind of interesting. Yeah, it's just, I, I don't know, the stupidity just seems to be peak stupidity. It's like the, 
it's it's the fact that in the Ripper case, people made stupid suggestions, but we don't have any evidence that the authorities actually carried them out. Um, but in this case, it seems like people made stupid suggestions and most of them were the authorities and they carried them out. And it's like, we'd hire a dete- we'd hire more, 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 more police. <laughs> oh, we can't afford more police. Um, we'll hire this dodgy detective agency that doesn't seem to actually, you know, it's never investigating it, I guess. And they just cock up. It's like, we need to get the Pinkertons. And then it's like, oh, we got the Pinkertons. We got the wrong Pinkertons, but we're going to pretend they're the right ones. And then they just come I up love- some that dodgy <laughs> evidence it's like you know it's it's yeah, texas and, and, honey and that, with, that's when, texas <laughs> yeah yeah that that's yeah that that's texas in a lot of the south at the time to where you know anytime any like john said anytime anyone was suggested as being a, you know involved in one of the murders oh you know this guy who worked at a, as a steward in the bar you know, used to date the cousin of the sister of the woman who was killed and he gets drunk. Well, then the authorities would run and grab this guy and torture him, basically, mm-hmm. in, in an attempt to at- obtain a confession. And when he wouldn't confess, then they say, oh, well, I guess he's not the guy and we'll let him go. And this happened repeatedly, you know, rounding up the usual suspects amongst the black community uh the a guy who was known for stealing chickens suddenly oh that was, it was just... the main you know suspect in in the this series of murders yeah uh, you didn't see that happen in the well that we know of you didn't see that happen in the white chapel murder case when someone suggested the guy i got drunk at the bar might be jack the ripper they the Scotland Yard. I mean, they were as stupid as I would argue as the Austin police to where the, uh, apparently all that they needed to exonerate themselves was to establish their whereabouts. You know, where were you um, on the night of the double event? Oh, I was at home sleeping. Oh, okay, that's good enough. You know, th- thanks for thanks for playing. Move along. One, yeah, but one thing I found- Scotland Yard. Scotland Yard actually did put officers on the streets. They did throw police at it. Um, whereas in Texas, it was like, nah, we can't increase to 30 officers. You know, 12 across the entire city is plenty, you know. and um, Well, hold on. You have to give, like, London at the time was a gigantic major metropolis full of uh, economic viability, whereas Austin at the time was a little podunk, nothing on the outskirts of the Texas, you know, Well, that's, this is part of the problem because I I didn't know Austin was like that because it's the most important place in Texas. You think it's going to be like, not not on the state, say, you know, size of London, but you think it's going to be comparable to other um, you know, American capital cities at the time. I mean, it becomes, but it was 1885 and we were just basically, you know, we weren't a hundred years. Well, I guess technically we were, but, you know, back then Texas was the frontier. It wasn't 
you know, what it is now. It, they hadn't discovered oil yet. They hadn't become what they would one day become. They were on their way, but they definitely weren't there. But I did find one of the things I did think was interesting about the when all the people doing stupid things is that when they brought the boyfriend of the black servant, Molly, when they brought him to trial, I was sure he was going to get convicted. Like I'm reading this, or I guess it was just a, a, a like a grand jury, but like, I was sure they were going to like string him up because it was easy. It was quick. It was whatever. And they acquitted him and were like, no, there, there's not enough evidence and let him go. And then when the white husband, where they yes, actually had yes. physical evidence that it was not him, he was bashed in the back of the head with an ax. The footprint did not match. They had actual physical evidence that it was not him. And they convicted him. I was like, what, what is happening right now? Like, it's like tech. I think by that point, I'm curious if they were just so done, they just wanted an answer they wanted to tie something up and say you know this that they just convicted him and to to get it over with yeah but that came before the the trial of the the black guy no i don't think so yeah the white guy was on trial first i thought they put the the molly's boyfriend went up for grand jury like in the summer and his wife didn't get killed until Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, no. like that in-betweener time. No, the tri- the trial was after or the, um, because um, it kept on comparing the, the trial of the, the black guy to the trial of the white guy um, uh, retrospectively in the narrative. I thought that was the husband of the uh, the two white guys went on trial for oh, their I wife's murder. I believe that they were the last ones. Yeah, because those um, were the last. And they killings. were they were kind of back to back. The yeah, trials they happened on the same the night. Husbands. Yeah. I mean the the I, tri- and then they they tried one husband, uh, you know, basically saying that they were copycat murders, though, right? Um, that these two men act, just coincidentally acted independently of each other. And on, the same night. Wife, on the same night in order to make it appear as though um it was the austin servant girl annihilator who was the perpetrator see i kind of think that the second guy might have done well actually i guess he was the first he was the first crime of the night and i can't remember his name like i don't think eula phillips even though her husband had the better motive she was the one who was sneaking around and and um even though he had a better motive the physical evidence was there that he was not involved like that bloody footprint out in the hall that was proven that it could not have been his um so but i i don't know do you guys think that all of the murders were carried out by the same person or do you think that there was i'm not convinced i think this is why um to me i'm like uh it's because there is there isn't actually any real evidence that they were necessarily all by the same perpetrator. They could have been copycats. They could have been completely coincidental almost, you know, especially because some of them have got different, um, you know, modus operandi um, in terms of the, the, the actual murder method. It's, yeah, I'm, I'm not 100% convinced. Um, it'd be, you know, coincidence if they weren't, but at the same time, coincidences do happen. I, I think that they um, several of them were probably committed by the same person, 
Um, but something strange was going on in Austin at the time, because then you have in between attacks, the, these servants' quarters being shot at, um, you know, bricks being thrown through windows, people, you know, whether they were attempted attack, you know, people um, hearing the, some of the servants hearing noises and going outside and then being grabbed but then being released and, and then, um, you know, so, so whether those were all connected incidents, like um, the author kind of wants us to believe that, you know, the gunshots through the, the servants quarters on random off nights where murder didn't take place might've been the murderer, but then he ends up, using a club to uh, knock the women out. And a gun doesn't play into any of the um, actual murders themselves. So it's yeah. something strange was going on. I think that women were being attacked probably by more than one individual, just randomly, maybe because of their race or something. Um, but but then but then you do have the, you have similar methods of death, right? especially with the lobotomizing the, the women with the ice picks, hitting them over the head with an ax. I mean, I found it interesting and I could be wrong. I, I, I need to go back and, and, and it was something that occurred to me kind of late in the day. And then I, and I didn't have the time to go back and, and thoroughly study it. So pull me up on this if I'm wrong, but in the servant girl murders, the perpetrator brought his own weapons and the two white women who were attacked on Christmas Eve weapons at the home were used. Like he, he used the ax that both of the husbands had laid out on the woodpile kind of a thing. Um, so I was kind of sitting there wondering, and I haven't made a firm determination on this. If the Eula, Eula was killed in like, to cover up politically, you know, one of her paramours killed her because she was the one who had like wood laid over her, which had not occurred before. And then the other one, I was wondering if that was actually her husband who did it. And they both tried to make it look like because the the servants who were attacked, they were all attacked, like in the kitchens of homes, in the, you know, the servants quarters. And in those two cases, the killer like goes into the house enters up into the master's, you know, the, the, the main bed chambers of the home, that's a far greater infiltration into a home than had previously occurred in any of the other murders kind of a thing. So it was just, it was a slight difference in, in um, method and how he did it, like going into a home and into the bed, you know, the bed chambers upstairs or, out, you know, that's a different kind of an intrusion than just breaking into the downstairs kitchen or breaking into the servants quarters kind of a thing, which I found it was an interesting progression in the crime. Yeah. I mean, you could argue it is like escalation or the killer becoming more daring, um, that type of thing, you know, it's like, but yeah, it is a, um, yeah, it is a bit of a difference. And the, the weapons are a very good point. Um, you know, the fact that with the white women, they were ones that were on the home. As far as we're aware with the black victims, it, it wasn't. He would always, um, or most of the time, correct me if I'm wrong, leave the weapons behind, though, when the servant girls were murdered. 
And so he, you know, I don't know, maybe weapons for the guy with short supply, but then to play devil's advocate, kind of like what Ali was saying. I mean, when he would enter in to one of the servants girls shacks, um, he, he tossed the place, you know, robbery seemed like it was, uh, uh, some of some of the motive there whereas with the white women much you know wealthier obviously than the servants um i don't believe there is a report of like anything being stolen was there Mm-mm, not or, that i remember or, or ransacked no. why would he go into a poor servant girl's shack and ransack the place looking for valuables presumably but then not do the same when he's in one of the wealthier homes. Yeah, I don't get so if you the, the murder weapon thing that Ali mentioned is bothering me now because you're not guaranteed you're going to find a murder. Is he going about homes looking? Oh, there's an axe being left outside this house. I'll go in here, um, and then. How does he know that, you know, he's not going to run into resistance inside the house? Um, yeah, I, I'm now wondering if the if the white victims could be copycats or, or made to look like um, servant girl annihilator murders, which I think is a, it's a better name than the Midnight Assassin. You know what's funny? A character from a comic book. I had heard of the Servant Girl Annihilator before and probably read a tiny bit about it. It did not stick on me that it was in Austin, Texas. And it wasn't until I was mid through this book that I realized that it was the same case. Because I'm like, and then I was like, why didn't he call this the Servant Girl? <laughs> because yeah, I, 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 I didn't I, connect I, it until late. I'd heard of the Servant Girl Annihilator as well. I didn't know anything about the case, but I'd heard of it. Right. Um, I heard, I, I, and, you know, I hadn't heard of the Midnight Assassin. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, when you're a ripperologist, you come across that case if you've read, you know, many of the press reports about the Jack the Ripper murders, as well as the Melee Cook, um, that um, theory that uh, plays a part in both the Austin Servant Girl murders and the Jack the Ripper Cook case. And yeah, um, I think Seth mentions it, doesn't he, as well? And he mentions the murders in Nicaragua, which also, um, you know, you, you also read about when you read about the Ripper case. And uh, suspect theorists have even tried to tie Jack the Ripper to these uh, fictional, essentially, murders that might have taken place in Nicaragua. So yeah, that, that, that habit. So Sorry, you, I, I wonder if more ripperologists have heard about the servant girl murders than actual Texans. Probably. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> murder isn't really a, a like, like he, he was, he said somewhere at the end of the book where he said somewhere like, I couldn't believe nobody had ever heard of this. And it's like, just right. because you have an interest, it, it always baffles me why, why people think that what to them is just common knowledge should be common knowledge for everything. And how could people not know about this gruesome murder? And I was right. at the time, I'm thinking, you're a reporter. If, you're, if your city is on the verge of being totally wiped out by economic collapse based on how people are going to button this down. They're not, you know, they were getting bad press and people were leaving town and moving out of Austin. Their city was 
under siege and people are going to button that down so as not to completely destroy their economy. It's not going to be something people are going to go around gossiping and having grand fun relishing and telling tales about if it's literally destroying your city. Yeah, um, but what on the other on the, the, the other hand, what's also interesting is that Skip Holmesworth wasn't made aware of this case until like the late 1990s. Him being one of the most preeminent Texas true crime writers of his generation, whereas ripperologists were aware, obviously, of this long before Skip Hollingsworth was, because it appeared in Stuart Evans' book, uh, case book, uh, press reports um, are full of accounts of the Austin uh, servant girl murders. Um, and, And so that was surprising to me that and when and when Hollinsworth first became aware of it, he didn't believe it. He's like, "No, that can't be true. That you know, let me let me just look into this." And then you know, the floodgates opened. So, do any of you, in reading what he wrote about the Jack the because so usually, as I've said, like if somebody gets a detail or two wrong about a case that they're not actually writing about, I don't have a a, have a have a conniption but he was writing about a murderer who was also suspected of being jack the ripper it was there was a direct connection in this and being that he got a few of the details wrong about the jack the ripper case did that make you look at the rest of his reporting with some suspicion because i if, if you if you get facts wrong on a case that you're technically reporting on that makes me eye the rest of what you write with a little bit of suspicion. I mean, for me, it was just a bit of the ridiculousness of what he was saying there. Um, the passage where he says that, that London's alleyways had bloodhounds bounding up and down them. It just shows a complete lack of familiarity with the geography of the Whitechapel area. Um, okay, you know, I just I just committed the same sin um, with Texas, but, uh, you know, I presumably haven't researched it other than reading one book. Um, but for me the part that really bothered me and this is not necessarily Jack the Ripper related it's the Queen Victoria thing it's him stating (laughs) that Queen Victoria's first public appearance in 25 years was randomly turning up at a performance of the Buffalo Bill Wild West show I I agree that 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 is uh, badly written I would say He he had the wrong choice of words but I do believe that the Wild West show was her first attendance at a public performance it wasn't a public performance she had a private performance of the wild west well there is two though right she she first had attended the earl's court one right which was a public performance no she attended a a second performance private where she brought all of the uh the european dignitaries along with her no, her first performance was a private uh, performance as well. She didn't make many public appearances, attend public performances of things. Um, after I think that that's the difference, though, because if you do, if you do look it up, um, it's not, it's not, if it's an error, that it, then it's not one that only Skip has made, um, because it, it is referred to as her first 
appearance at a public performance elsewhere. Now, him saying that it's basically the first time she left the house ever, you know, I think it was a bad choice of words. I mean, there was an assassination attempt on her about in the early 1870s at a public performance in memory of Albert. So she went to other public performances prior to this, 10 years before mm-hmm. at least. Um, so it's, I, just, well, he also, it's very bad research. He also got details of the Eddowes murders wrong. He, you know, repeated the, like, the, the myth of, you know, the bloodhound fog shrouded baying through the streets kind of a thing there was some there was some play but and again how much do i hold him to account for if he's not really researching jack the ripper but it is he he, there was a direct line parallel there where uh attention to detail you either got it or you don't and everybody's gonna make a couple of mistakes here and there but there were quite a few in the jack the ripper passage which again if i didn't know about Jack the Ripper, I would not know. I don't know about the Servant Girl Annihilators. So what mistakes are in there that I don't know about and I didn't pick up on because I don't know the actual facts. Things like that make me question. If I know Mm -hmm. something is factually inaccurate, then it makes me question, like, well, what else has he written in here that was done for color or for ease or for laziness of, of detail that isn't actually factual. So that's yeah, a big hole in I my think, mind. Um, yeah. And, and the, the, what, what this might be about, I mean, well, what the uh, Queen Queen Victoria thing, I, I believe he uses the, the words, you know, it was reportedly her first public appearance or something like that. Um, I get the sense that he based a, a ton of his um work on about the servant girl aspect of the case and then later most likely the white chapel murders on just what was reported in the newspaper at the time now whether he's refer whether his source i didn't go through his notes as ali said at the very beginning he didn't footnote his sources or anything like that he just has yeah. a list of notes at the back of the book that i didn't read through but if he was basing nearly all of his reporting i uh all of his book on what he gleaned from newspaper articles at the time then those errors whether it be about the servant girl murders or the white chapel murders would have crept in we all know that american reporting especially yeah so especially if he was relying upon the microfilm of newspaper of american newspapers at the university of texas or something like that then you're talking about reporting about the Whitechapel murders that is probably just rife with errors well he's a reporter you don't go to texas to research something that happened in london he should know better than that you know but i I do have the feeling that he he bait he 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 did just mainly utilize press reporting about both murders at the time in order to piece together his story. And so, yeah, if you can question whether, you know, um, the sources he was using about the Whitechapel murders when he says that Catherine Eddowes' intestines were were torn out and taken away, then then it does make you think, hmm, well, what, what details about um, the main case we're discussing did did he get wrong but because I mean, he cites, of bad sources 
he cites his sources um, for uh, the Jack Ripper murders um, as Evans and Skinner's The Ultimate Jack the Ripper source book, Sugden's The Complete History of Jack the Ripper, Begs Jack the Ripper the Facts, Rumblow's Complete Jack the Ripper. I don't believe any of those books say that Catherine Edda's intestines were missing. No, um, no, no. They say um, they say they were removed beg. and it's placed over her fault. shoulder. Um, it's all Beg's fault. Let's go blame Beg. And, and, the beg. O- and if you recall, the only quote unquote ripperologist he name drops in the book is Shirley Harrison. Shirley Harrison. So yeah. So, uh, but I think it's like you know, I look at it as comparable to the book The Fox and the Flies. Um, the 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 case that we're talking about is the servant girl annihilator case. Jack the Ripper has to be tagged on, you know, because that's what what the the, the connection is to the most f- more famous murder case. The same kind of way that Van Osselen writes a great book about Joseph Liss, but then tacks on a terrible couple of chapters at the end about the Whitechapel murders. Yeah, so I I don't. Um, I don't really judge the book as a whole based on the terrible writing uh, um, concerning the Whitechapel murders as maybe Allie would. Well, I mean, no, I, I like, have lots I like, of terrible I like writing to judge it on. I have lots of terrible writing to judge it on. I, I think there should be a certain standard of fact-checking. Um, I can forgive the the the, the frog-shrouded Allie thing, Allie's thing because um, a lot of... Jack the Ripper books do repeat that myth. It, it, you know, it, it is a popular myth. Um, you can look into it a bit more to know that it, it, it's just a myth. Um, yeah, I was going somewhere with that. I didn't know where. Um, the bloodhounds racing up and down alleys. That that could be dramatic license. Okay, yeah. But the Catherine Eddowes thing is, is quite a major factual error where even a cursory glance at any primary source um from the time and we do have those primary sources um for for the Edo's murder would tell you it's wrong so yeah that's what bothers me there one of the things that i did that like you know I, i do like a book that makes me go hmm a little bit and think about it and one of the things i alluded to in the beginning of the book and how he ties things and brings things back around that i actually found interesting was i was like why am i reading about this wedding that took place at this asylum. This is so not necessary. And then he brings it back around in the end to one, of course, the asylum was like, everybody was pointing their finger because the, the main, uh, because head person there had taken down the big fences to make it a more uh, soothing place as opposed to like a prison. He had taken down the fences. So that actually got pulled back around later on when people started pointing fingers, trying to find blame. But then the son-in-law, the guy who had had the wedding at the asylum, was apparently committed for reasons unknown a couple of months after the 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 servant girl, you know, murders sort of quit, he was actually committed into an asylum and they didn't let him stay at the asylum that he had worked at for all that time. They committed him into another asylum to get him off the grounds of where he was and ended up locking him up somewhere else. 
I found that very intriguing. I was curious, and, and he did, to his credit, the author did try to find out more information. There just wasn't more information to be found. But I actually thought that was a very interesting detail. And of course, it could be coincidental and completely innocent and completely, you know, not in any way related. But man, that makes a good story. You know, it's it's a, it's yeah. a good little, mm. I mean, if, if you... I, I, in my opinion, it was probably quite a wise thing to commit your son-in-law. If your son-in-law is being committed, not to have them in your asylum, because um, there's probably you know conflict of interest things. And he, as he worked there as well, um, I think it's a wise thing it would be to um, you know ship him off to a different asylum. But as you said, it's very interesting that he was uh, committed for unknown reasons. Um, uh, you know, and the. Um, there's a mystery around that, yeah. Are there any other thoughts about this book, or are we ready to give our ratings? Um, uh, the, the the some of the other suspects that would uh, were like hinted at or suggested, like the former was the former marshal, who because he apparently never married was suspicious or something. Yeah. Like that. Gay people don't exist in Texas. <laughs> yeah, he, he put at the end, he was like, there was a guy, this one marshal, he's like, he never hung out with women and he never married. He must be a woman-hating misogynistic killer. Or he's gay. <laughs> you know, that like, Texas doesn't consider that possibility <laughs> at all. You know. Could have been gay, Skip. Gay does exist even in Texas. <laughs> But yeah, there there wasn't a whole lot of, of of good detective work at the time. So this is just literally going to be one of those, I think, that's always going to live in the, hmm, you're never yeah. going to know. It, which is uh, Actually, there is one thing I'd like to say that did annoy me in the book. At the end where he did that cursory, would they have solved the murders today section? Where it's like, yes, they'd have caught it after the first one. What a load of nonsense. Um. You know, it's how many serial killers in America have taken months or years to catch, even if at all. Yeah. Um, how, Especially when their victims are black. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's. I mean, this Jeffrey reminds... Dahmer was allowed to to kill what twenty African American kids who went missing in, in, in Cleveland. Before anyone even batted an eyelid, before any of the authorities ever took any notice whatsoever of all these missing people. Yeah. Well, wasn't there a thing in Kansas City just like a couple months ago where people were saying like black women were disappearing off the streets and the police were like, yeah, this isn't happening. And then a woman escaped from like a guy who had had her chained up in the basement or something just like a month ago. Yeah. Yeah. It happens There's... all the time. Um, if he would have started murdering the rich white women, then possibly he would have been caught after the first or second one. Um, but yeah, if killing um, you know, if he start if, if he if he started uh, his murder spree as he did, killing six uh African American servants, I seriously doubt. <laughs> he would have been caught after the very first one, especially when all he left behind was a, a footprint. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a, it's not a murder case. I don't think it's a murder case. I don't think he actually killed anyone. But um, there is a, a case in Britain um, where um, 
it, it, he's actually he's known as either Night Stalker in the papers, or he was also known as the Minstead Man or the Minstead Rapist. Um, and he broke into houses of elderly women and raped and sexually assaulted them. And his crimes went on from 1992 until 2009. Um, and in London. Um, it's not like just in the middle of nowhere and stuff like that. And it, t- it took them seventeen years to catch him, and that is with modern modern policing methods. Yeah, the grim the grim sleeper case in Los Angeles um, is another one where I mean we can go on and on and on about serial killers who hadn't been caught, but you know um, we're talking about dozens of women who went missing off the streets of Los Angeles, and the grim sleeper wasn't even the only serial killer targeting African-American women in the same neighborhood at the time. So you had about three active um, serial killers within a square mile of each other uh, that were able to indiscriminately kill dozens upon dozens of poor black women in Los Angeles for decades. Um, and they didn't catch uh, the Grim Sleeper until um, they were until they were able to match his uh, his son was arrested <clears throat> and was given and and had to submit their DNA, um, which was thrown into the database to you know and in a reverse genealogy thing. Yeah, kind of. That's uh, the thing. DNA is all very well and good if you if if the DNA is already on record. If if the suspect's right. DNA isn't on record, it's Anyway, this time we hear not that. Um, what, what, as as we've used the words several times, actually the words several times in the last few minutes, I, I'd like to address the the subtitle of the book, um, "The Hunt for America's First Serial Killer." Now, I think this is the third book we've reviewed about America's first serial killer. Um, <laughs> no. no, the first family of serial killers is a distinction of the first American serial killer. See, it's all shades of distinction. The first serial killing family, the first serial killer, etc. Et well, the other one we read was America's first serial killer as well, wasn't it? Um, what's his name? Uh, Cream. Cream. He's America's first serial killer as well. Apparently, you know, it's. A... But he didn't really. Yeah, serial and what's funny? Yeah, and then and then Skip goes on to talk about H. H. Holmes, and you're talking about the terrible. Um, you know, research involved in the H.H. H. Holmes case. Oh. There was no Adam Seltzer around when, uh, you know, Hollinsworth was researching this book who put all of those H.H. H. Holmes myths to rest, but to, you know, parade out the total bullshit about H.H. H. Holmes running a murder castle, yeah. killing 20 women, sending them down through shoots and all this stuff. Well, H.H. H. Holmes, as we all know, who came along after the Austin Servant Girl murderer, is also America's first serial killer. Well, um, I, I had a cursory look at Wikipedia last night, and I found about five other serial killer cases that happened before this one. So I'm, I'm just fed up of these. Food. I right. bet you the well, next in book the United we read about States- well, it's not like Jack the Ripper was England's first serial killer. It's just no. who gets the pro- popular press, who becomes like the reigning crowned king of firsts, you know? Yeah, and, they, yeah. 
it's all it, about it's we'll never know the first the first american serial killer was himself a native american in 1600 you know what i mean like we we don't yeah, know yeah. who the first serial it was I, there were people killing people way before white people ever stepped foot on this continent and you know they'll be killing people long after we're all radioactive dust so it, it just seems to be every single book we read about uh someone a killer in america in the 1800s is america's first serial killer and like you said britain's as guilty as it they've uh, you know a lot of people now have now kind of rebranded jack the ripper as the first modern serial killer whatever the hell that means but yeah, yeah. it's we should do a series of like, I don't know, five or six books just based on the first, first serial the killer. first serial killer. And then uh and then judge judge which one we really believe to be the first at the end. That's another thing as well. You know, so the Ben does America's first serial killing family. One of those Wikipedia articles was about a family of killers um from something like the late 1700s. So it's you will never i mean people have been killing people since you know literally the dawn of time so nobody's the first nobody's special none of you are special i'm special i'm wearing a crown that is true and 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 jonathan has his emphatic fluffy pen so i need a good prop to make me special i have my coffee cup that's all i have all right are we ready to rate this sucker yeah you want me to start I'll let, we'll, we'll, we'll break tradition and let Jonathan Menges give his rating. Go ahead, Jonathan, give your rating. Okay, I, I give this one a three and a half stars. Lost. <laughs> see, but I'm not sure if you guys consider that a good or a bad rating. I I have, I would consider it more leaning towards the bad side. Um, a four, four stars would have been solid. It's less than that. I I think that um, really, if you want to get the the story, um, you should go back to his Texas Monthly article he wrote about this case back in 2000. Um, that's where the writing of Skip Hollingsworth shines, is, is, is in his feature articles. Um, so this book is an expanded, a heavily expanded version of, of the Texas Monthly uh, feature article he wrote about the case covers all the bases and um it you know it leaves out a, a lot of the repetition that I found uh in, in this that he put into this book. You know, after every single murder took place, um a group uh, of a half a dozen of the most prominent citizens gathered on a street corner to discuss it. You know, and then the next murder happens and a group of prominent citizens in Austin gathered on the street corner and discussed it or there was a party thrown and and most likely the most prominent citizens of Austin gathered around to discuss it the magazine article cuts all that stuff out and gets right right to the core of the story which um which, so I'd recommend people seek that out probably before reading this book um the things I liked about the book were being having lived in Austin at the time, I, I did enjoy the the local history, the uh, you know the things that other readers might might find uh, superfluous, like the uh, connection he draws between you know the servant girl murders and the erection of the um, the pyramid moonlight um, lamps all over town, um, which is towards the end of the book. 
um, that illuminated the whole area, some would say to an excessive degree. Um, that was pretty cool for me being someone who's lived in Austin because you can still walk around and see those things. And, and, but you don't make the connection between why they're there, what they are. Um, so I found it, uh, that part of it, uh, the book interesting. Um, but again, it could have only, it could only really appeal to someone who is familiar with Austin. Um, so I, uh, if you're unfamiliar with Austin, you might get more enjoyment out of the magazine article. Okay. I think he overstretched his audience, like I said earlier. John Reese? Um, ask a very quick question before I give my, my, my opinion. Do those <laughs> lights still work then? Or do they just, uh, are they just the towers are still there? Yeah, they still work. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Just, but but I think as, as lights all over us, but they're just randomly placed. I think as I think he mentions in the book that um, they're not they don't seem bright now because the streetlights are are closer to the ground and brighter, you know. So at the time, I guess they really, you know, were something to behold. But but nowadays, you know, you, you're walking, you, you're just used to the normal street lighting that you would find in any city. So they're, they're just odd um, things more so than they have no function it doesn't seem i think they're they're historic right they they've they've made them historical things yeah, they so tore down they, a bunch of them that were right. not no longer you know safe or whatever but the ones that are yeah. remaining have been designated historical uh landmarks or whatever they're called structures yeah. okay uh, my rating i am going to give it a a 3.25 um now to me three is average so i'm putting this slightly above average um it would have had higher if the um if the referencing was better um again but i did think the referencing i know we keep on comparing it to the previous book um the referencing was slightly better than the one in um hell's half acre but it still you know lacked those uh footnotes or in text uh citations um and the it's also lost a little bit for the um, easily verifiable factual errors that I have ranted about uh, previously. So, uh, yeah, just slightly above average, I'd say. So I did not dislike the book. I didn't like the book. It was, as I said, very much an average book. I was pr I'm probably going to come down. I feel like I was gonna come down at, a, at about a three but I, that is like a dead average for me that's like neither that is the I don't love it I don't hate it it's just okay I'm probably gonna give it a 3.25 though because I liked it a little bit more I did like some of the elements one of the elements I, I did not mention during the podcast that I actually really enjoyed was how he kind of charted the emotional impact on the murders through the undertaker who was writing down the means of death um right. for the different women and like at the first oh, the, one uh, he wrote something the, uh, like church. yeah he wrote like head wound yeah. and then the second one he wrote uh like neck wound and then the third one he just wrote wounds and then when that little girl was killed he finally wrote murdered and he and he did a very interesting job in my opinion of sort of charting the denial and the mental 
crux of like people coming to grips with this just through how these women's deaths were described in that registry, which I thought was actually a nice kind of a touch. I did appreciate that. But his excessive and inaccurate use of quotes just drove me crazy constantly. And it wasn't just that he quoted things inaccurately, but he quoted things like, for, for my my taste, if you're going to quote something, then it should be because that person said it better than you could ever say something. And he quoted a lot of stuff that I was just like, why is this on the page? It's not even good writing. It's not a great quote. So why is he using it? Like where he described the one guy's posture writing how he rode very, or, you know, upright on a horse. And he was like, back in the day, they would have said he rode as straight as a bull's dick. And I was just like, what? That's not a good quote. You know, that's not, and I'm not, you know, I'm not like blushy, like, oh my gosh, never use anything vulgar. But it just clunked on the page, like describing somebody riding a horse as being straight as a bull's dick is not great writing. And so I just, I was like, if he did, Go ahead, John. If he's, if, he's, if he's put that as a direct quote, I think that is a good quote. Um, no, I mean, it's just not like, okay, first of all, what makes a bull's dick any straighter than any other? You know, it's not a descriptive, I, it's like a 14-year-old boy's humor. I'm sorry, John, but you've got 14-year-old boy's humor. It's, yeah. And again, I am not opposed to a good penis metaphor. I have on a, many occasion called somebody a needle-dicked bug fucker. So it's not even like I'm opposed to you using animal dick imagery to describe somebody. I just felt it clunked on the page, like the way he used it. Yeah. It was just like, ha ha, let me insert this. And it just clunked. It Maybe didn't... it's a familiar expression that's still used in Texas. Um, again, it, it, might, it, it might just be that he overreached his audience, um, you know, in that, in that, you know, he's trying to, to put you in, in in texas you know where yeah. where texans would use an expression like that and maybe still do I, but it go it falls clunky for someone you know in florida who who's never vowed never to set foot in the state of texas her entire life if you've never seen a bull's dick in person it means nothing to you right i it's have um, seen a bull's dick i'm a redneck y'all i have been around <laughs> I've been around I, horses. I have been around bulls in all sorts of state. It's still clunked on the page for me. I've, but again, I've, that's just personal I, I preference. Have, I haven't heard the bulls one, but I have heard similar things, you know, straight as a, you know, dick, um, insert animal here. I, I have heard that used um, or, or read that used. So I think it is an I expression in places. And you're from, you grew up in Texas and you never heard it before. Yeah, so. but, you know, I, I, you know, I wasn't, I, I was an outcast of society in Texas. <laughs> well, you know. that's why <laughs> Texas is, but anyway, so again, I, I didn't love the writing. I thought he did a few things really well. I thought he tied up all of his threads really well. Like I said, it was very competently written. But it, there was no spark. There wasn't a spark. So I'm giving it a 3.25 also, John. We tie. 
So we're not all that far off. Everybody groaned when I gave it a 3.5, but then you guys just come in. No, that was shocked. Yeah, I thought I was just purely shocked because you you were like, he's my boy. He's a Texas boy. <laughs> <laughs> you know? we're, we're shocked. We thought it was going to be like a 4.5 well, for you. I, I, yeah. I, well, the impression that I I got from both of you yesterday was that you you both hated the book. No. So I, I'm equally no, shocked that you both gave it a 3.25 but yeah um that's one of the things you know uh like you know i've said um is is i could be slightly skewed biased towards skip hollandsworth just because i was familiar with his writing and he he uh he becomes you know he's must the must see television of the texas true crime writing and, and you know you just want to read everything he ever puts out and, he's uh, jonathan's taylor swift yeah um so <laughs> so i was afraid that you know you guys were both gonna come up with a one star or something no no it was definitely not a one star no. but it was no it was just it was a, it was a it was a competent book it wasn't now has wow. he written any more um non-fiction books since then or has he learned his lesson and um and stuck to feature writing I thought he had written something else. Again, I didn't do a huge deep dive on him because again, audience, there is no author interview after this. He did not respond to my email. And uh, I do want to put out, like, since this is like, I think the two lowest books I've ever rated have also been the ones the authors did not appear on. I always invite them on before I read the book. So they are invited before I've ever read the book. So I have no idea going in whether I'm going to like or dislike their okay, book. Okay, so, so uh, Skip Hollinsworth has written The Midnight Assassin. And all of the other books that are published um, under his name are compilations of his Texas Monthly True Crime article writing. Okay. And, and so anthologies of true crime from Texas Monthly Magazine. So there you go. I would probably enjoy that more, like you said, because I do, like, while I was reading it, it really was giving me, like, reporting vibes as opposed to writing vibes. Because there's a difference in how you convey information yeah. for a for a you know a magazine article a feature article or a, a, a newspaper article and right. i was definitely getting non-literary vibes from it so right and he wrote um it, you know he wrote a, a feature article for texas monthly on the bernie t murder which was turned in he didn't have to write a full-length book about that case that feature article was good enough for Hollywood to pick it up and put cast Shirley MacLaine of all lovable people uh, alongside Jack Black into a movie adaptation of his feature article on Bernie. So um, his, his writing is very good. He does tend to pick up obscure cases. Like, I don't know if y'all are familiar with the Texas cheerleader murder Allie might be um, yeah. being, um from america but you know it's that kind of you know craziness happening in small town texas that just explodes into this larger than life epic story full of cr the craziest characters you could ever imagine based on a true story and they're the craziest people that you can imagine because they live in texas and so that's, you know, that's the kind of stuff that 
that he's really good at. And um, so do search out some of his other writing. The Bernie article that he wrote is really good. The movie's really good, you know, um, so. All right. Well, thank you for, so much for joining me, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This concludes this episode of Off the Shelf. Please join us next month where we will be discussing the book All That is Wicked by Kate Winkler Dawson. Until then, thanks for listening.